Do the hard work of heart work now, because if you put yourself to death in the present moment, then you take away the power of persecution in the future moment. Hey, good morning. It's nice to see you guys. I'm Cole. I'm one of the, one of the pastors here. They hand me the microphone about twice a week or twice a month. I wish it were twice a week. That'd be the dream job twice a month. And I get to preach to us. So uh, if this is your first Sunday here at Frontier, we're psyched you're here, man. We love Jesus. We love people. We love the Bible. We are about a third of the way through a long, long, long sermon series, about a two year long sermon series throughout the book of Mark. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get that open. Um, If you don't, there's one in front of you. If you don't want that, we'll have it on the screen for you. We are in Mark chapter six. We're going to start at the second half of verse six. And we're going to go all the way uh, to verse 30. And uh, should be a doozy this morning. Um, th- this is one of those stories in the Bible that feels like it, like it belongs less in the scriptures and more in like an Edgar Allan Poe short story. It's gothic. It's macabre. It feels like it was taken out of a, a horror movie. So it should be a fun one. Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 6. We're thinking about the relationship between telling the truth and getting yourself killed. So let me pray and we'll jump into that. Heavenly Father, I'll pray for a special outpouring of your spirit this morning. This is one of those stories that if we were just preaching a topical sermon series or if we were just the type of church where every Sunday we just kind of thought about and preached on whatever Cole was thinking about that week, this is one of those Bible stories that we would just never, ever get around to reading and thinking about. Certainly, certainly isn't a story that I would choose to preach I, I, this week, I was, as I was thinking about the sermon, I was like, man, I just want one of those Jesus loves you Bible stories. And uh, of course, that's, that's in there. But instead, we have to, instead of getting one of those stories, we have to reckon with a head on a platter. And um, nobody comes to church on Sunday morning to think about a head that's been severed and put on a platter. Nobody shows up thinking, man, that would just be so encouraging. And so, Lord, if this is to be edifying, if this is to build us up, if this is to be so encouraging, then your son must speak to us this morning and your spirit must whip us up into a spiritual frenzy this morning. And so, Lord, I just offer my heart to you, offer my mouth to you, I offer my mind to you, and I just ask you to use it in whatever way that you want in order to build up your people so that as we leave this morning, we feel a little bit closer to Jesus. That would be a win. So it's in his precious name that we pray all these things. Amen. We love the truth, right? We're truth people. We're Christians. We're lovers of the truth, right? We've got our coffee mugs that say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're truth people. We love the truth. Unless it gets in our way, right? 
When the truth gets in the way of our reputation, when the truth gets in the way of our dreams, when the truth gets in the way of our preferences, that's when we as Christians have the tendency to be like, okay, well, what does the original language say? Can't mean what it actually appears to mean. We love the truth until it gets in the way of us getting what we want. Here's a little bit of a thought experiment. And since this is my Edgar Allan Poe sermon this morning, where I'm going to get dark and macabre because the text is dark and macabre, we'll just start with a weird one, okay? Thought experiment for just a second. Imagine the truth of your heart. The objective truth of your heart, your heart as it is, not your heart as you wish it would be. Think about the objective truth of what goes on in your heart, all of the grim and ugly things that you have the tendency to hide, like what you really think about, what you really dream about, what really goes on in there, what your Google search actually is, how you really spend your money, how you really spend your free time. Think about the objective truth of your heart. Now, imagine being in the presence of people you love. You can imagine yourself at work. You can imagine yourself at home. You can imagine yourself at church. You can imagine yourself at a bar with some friends, whatever. Imagine if in the presence of loved ones, you suddenly, much to your surprise, coughed up the objective truth of your heart coughed it up. And then much to your surprise, suppose that the objective truth of your heart sprouted arms and legs. And then much to your horror, imagine that it developed a mouth and took on flesh. And then in front of all of your family, all of your friends, all of your co-workers, imagine that that person just immediately started telling everybody in the room the objective truth of your heart, what you really think about, what you really dream about, how you really spend your free time, what really goes on in your mind, just started as the truth, speaking the truth to everybody in the room. How would you feel about that? What would you want to do to that person? What the average person would want to do in a situation like that is reach her hands out and choke the truth out. Just stop, right? So in a world where the truth might hurt our reputation, in a world where the truth might get in the way of our preferences, in a world where the truth is sometimes hated, why in the world Would anybody tell the truth? Let's think about that this morning. Why should you tell the truth? Well, let's stand for the reading of the word of God and let's see what happens when the truth comes out. Second half of verse six, it starts like a regular Bible story. And Jesus went about the villages teaching. He's just been rejected by his hometown. So he's leaving his hometown and going to other villages. And then an amazing thing happens. Verse seven, he called the 12 disciples and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, pack lightly, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to the disciples, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. 
So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they casted out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. That's like, that's what you would expect when you open your Bible, right? Jesus sends his disciples out and they go on mission for Jesus. And you're like, yeah, that sounds like a Bible story. And then verse 14 happens. This political figure, King Herod, hears about all of this because Jesus's name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Wait, John's dead? We haven't heard about John the Baptist since chapter one. What in the world happened? Well, Mark thought you'd want to know. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others talking about Jesus said, no, 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 it's not John the Baptist. He's Elijah. But others were saying, well, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But King Herod, when Herod heard about all of this, he said, you can imagine a gulp. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. What? What happened? Well, again, Mark thought you'd want to know. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, uh uh-oh, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, not cool, bro. Well, I guess in the original text, it's, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not because King Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard John, he was greatly perplexed and yet he heard him gladly. Don't you love that? You know, like Herod's like, I don't know what he's talking about, but I like it. It's like, yeah, same sometimes. Oftentimes when I read the Bible, it's like, I don't know exactly what he's talking about here, but I like it. So he gets imprisoned. But then an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And so the girl went out and said to her mother, Herodias, well then, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And then when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then in verse 30, we're back to the disciples. The apostles returned to Jesus after being on mission and told him all that they had done and taught. The disciples on mission for Jesus, a weird Edgar Allan Poe story. The disciples on mission for Jesus. What is going on here? You can have a seat.
Mark's a smart cat. He, um, writer of the gospel, Mark, he doesn't spare any words. Every word is in there on purpose. Every word has a purpose in the story. He is, uh, he's probably the shortest breath of all of the gospel writers. And so he's wasting no words, which makes a reasonable thinker like yourself wonder, what in the world is this gothic story doing in the Holy Scriptures? Well, believe it or not, the structure of the story actually matters. And again, the structure of the story goes like this. The disciples on mission for Jesus... Weird Edgar Allan Poe story. The disciples on mission for Jesus. And so let's start where the story starts, which is with the disciples on mission for Jesus. It's kind of a cool part in the story, right? The first six chapters of uh, Mark, Jesus is going out. He's preaching repentance. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. And then something amazing happens in verse six of chapter six, right? It's not Jesus going out into these regions and doing these things anymore. All of a sudden he's sending out his disciples to be on mission for him. And not only are the disciples on mission for Jesus, But what are the disciples doing? Well, the disciples are doing what disciples of Jesus do. They are taking the ministry of Jesus, pinching it by the corner and extending it into the ancient world. This is what a disciple of Jesus is. A disciple of Jesus is somebody who does the things that Jesus does. That's essentially what's happening here. We don't have a lot of time to jump into some of those odd parts. Um, Maybe you can talk about those with your community group about shaking the, the dust off of your feet if you're not accepted. The main gist here, is that Jesus sends 12 disciples out because there were 12 tribes of Israel. This is Jesus making a new people for God, a new covenant, a new kingdom. And his disciples are going out in the ancient world and they're doing the things that Jesus was doing. Preaching, healing, casting out demons. And then all of a sudden, right here in your Bible, in verse 14, it's like there's a cut scene in the movie, right? The camera pans away from the disciples suddenly, and we confront ourselves with a jabroni named King Herod. Now, King Herod is a uh, political leader, an important, powerful political leader in the ancient world. And all of a sudden, he starts to get a whiff of Jesus's fame and reputation. Jesus's ministry is spreading. The disciples are out there. They're starting to preach a message of a different kingdom. And, and Herod's like, well, well, hold on a second. What in the world is, is going on? And it's, it's hard to pin his finger down on what's going on because people can't exactly pin down Jesus, can they? Some people are like, well, I, I think that, I think Jesus is just one of those Old Testament prophets. And some people are like, no, uh, no, 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 no. He's not just any prophet. He's Elijah. But, but who, does, who does Herod, who does King Herod think that Jesus is? Verse 16. When Herod heard of it, and this sounds like, It's coming from the conscience of an individual who can't sleep at night, doesn't it? He hears about everything that's happening under his nose in his kingdom. He hears about a rival kingdom associated with this person, Jesus. He's trying to pin down exactly what's going on. And so what he does is he thinks, oh no, my worst nightmare is coming true. Verse 16, when Herod heard of all of this, he said, it's John whom I beheaded. He's been raised from the dead. John, what happened to John? 
The dude had his head severed. What's going on here? Well, before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about who John the Baptist is, or I guess in this case, who John the Baptist was. We met John the Baptist all the way back in chapter one, which if you've been following at the pace of a frontier church sermon series was like eight months ago. So it's been like eight months since we thought about John the Baptist all the way at the beginning of chapter one. Here's the essential role that John the Baptist plays. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. Another way of thinking about that is John the Baptist foreshadows in a smaller extent what Jesus is going to accomplish to a much greater extent, right? John is the shadow Jesus is the substance. So John the Baptist comes along before Jesus. He starts a public ministry. He gains a lot of followers. Jesus comes along, starts his public ministry. He gains even more followers. John the Baptist comes along. He baptizes people with water. Jesus comes along. He baptizes people with the spirit. Everything that John does foreshadows what Jesus is gonna do. So John comes along. And he gets himself killed for speaking the truth. I wonder what that means about Jesus's ministry. Got himself killed? What in the world, what in the world happened there? Well, again, Mark thought you might want to know. So he tells you the whole gruesome, gothic, gory Rated R story happened with King Herod. Here's what happens. There's three main players in this. You've got King Herod right here. You've got King Herod's brother's wife, Herodias over here. Then you've got John the Baptist, the truth teller over here. Here's, here's what goes down. Okay. King Herod wants to marry Herodias. Herodias wants to marry King Herod. This is a no-go, okay? This is against law. This is against biblical law. This is against the, the law of the land. But here's what's probably going on. Herod is probably attracted to Herodias, and Herodias is probably attracted to Herod's, his, probably his power, right? That's probably what's going on here. If she gets in with him, she gets some of the share of the kingdom. So it, it seems like that's going to work out. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist steps in the middle of it and he says, no, it is not cool. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is kind of a no brainer, right? But Herodias really wants King Herod. And so this puts Herod in a bind right now because here's where Herod is at. And I want you to watch Herod really closely, okay? Herod, he likes Herodias. He wants to marry Herodias. But he also respects John the Baptist even though he doesn't know what John the Baptist is saying half of the time. John the Baptist says, don't do what you want to do because that's unlawful. Where does that put Herod? This is a classic, if you are a people pleaser, if you think like a politician, this is the worst place to find yourself, right? Because like, he likes Herodias, and that sounds right. It'd be great to marry her, but he also likes John the Baptist and respects him, and so what's he gonna do with that? And so Herod finds himself in the middle going, eh, 
And this is a pretty classic example for why you need to have a moral backbone and why you have to have a navigation for the truth and a compass for the truth, right? Because if you don't have any taste for the truth, if you don't love the truth, you're going to turn into a politician. What's the most popular thing being said right now? Here or here? Rather than what's the truth? It's not where Herod's at. Okay, well, if I do this, then Herodias is going to be mad. If I do this, then John the Baptist says, oh, I know what I'll do. So what Herod does is he seizes John the Baptist and puts John the Baptist in prison. Now, this is a classic solution right here because this does two things. Number one, it shuts up John the Baptist from telling the truth and decreases his influence in the ancient world, which should please Herodias. But number two, it also protects him from being killed by Herodias. So situation's over, right? Woo! We pleased both parties. Not quite. Herodias isn't happy. In fact, Herodias isn't pleased by John's decision, or sorry, Herod's decision to keep John alive behind prison. She wants him to shut up. Stop telling the truth. She wants him dead. Here's the, the colorful way that one scholar phrases this perfectly. Herodias knew, quote, Herodias knew that the only place for her wedding certificate with Herod to be signed on was on the back of a death warrant for John. Kill the prophet. Shut him up. I mean, Herod and Herodias, they have consciences, right? Like the law of God is written on our hearts. They know this is wrong. Herodias knows this is wrong. Herod knows this is wrong. You know what you can do with your conscience, though, if you have no taste for the truth? You can sear it. You can turn it off. And so they turn their conscience down. And all of a sudden... The truth walks into the situation. The truth with skin on. The truth with arms and legs. The truth as the person of John the Baptist. It's not lawful for you to do this thing that you want to do. And what does Herodias want to do when she's confronted with the truth? She wants to do what the world always wants to do when it's confronted with the truth. She wants to reach her hands out and strangle the truth. Stop talking. How's this work itself out though? Herod is protected, or sorry, John's protected in, in jail. How in the world is she going to get rid of John the Baptist? Well, eventually Herod's birthday comes around and Herod has this, since he's a king, he has this huge party for all of these powerful men, right? Who are the people who are invited to this party? It's a, it's a banger of a party. It's for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod has this big old party, right? There's all these powerful men here. But Herodias, she, she's got a plan, doesn't she? In fact, we learn that Herodias has, has a daughter and Herodias is willing to use her daughter as a pawn, as a strategy in order to get what she wants. And so there's this big banquet, there's this big party, there's all these powerful men here. King Herod is kind of in the middle, right? With his chalice, just enjoying it. And all of a sudden, Herodias sends her daughter into the middle of this party and she begins to do what? 
she begins to dance. Now, there's lots of textual details we don't know about that we probably don't need to know about. Is this G, PG-13, R? We, we don't really know, but what's meant here is that Herodias uses her daughter in order to seduce the men. She's got, she got a plan. She's a thinker. She's a strategizer. So Herodias' daughter goes out there, and she starts dancing. And there's all these powerful men. And they are spellbound by Herodias's daughter. Their jaws hit the floor. There's drool coming out of the sides of their mouth. Every step that Herodias's daughter takes in this dance, their eyes get a little bit hungrier. And who is right there to be impressed? with the impact that Herodias' daughter is having on his kingdom. Herod. He's sitting in the middle of his party, looking at his leading men, his military men, his powerful men, just spellbound by this girl dancing. And so he falls into a trap that he doesn't even know who is there. The dance ends. King Herod says, hey, come on over here. And she comes on over. And as a power play to impress all of his people, he says... I'll give you anything you want. You just say the word. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And as soon as those words come out of his mouth, hook, line, and sinker. Dude doesn't even know it, but he's been played. So Herodias' daughter skips on back to her mother and kind of innocently, she does, I don't even think she knows she's being used as a pawn, says to her mother, hey, he'll give me up to half his kingdom. What, what do you want? And she says, give me all the riches. Give me some military power. No, 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 no. You can almost imagine a green smile spreading across Herodias's face. Dark clouds gathering in the background of the scene. Lightning flashing. Thunder crashing. She tells her daughter, bring me back John's head on a plate. So Herodias' daughter goes back, says to King Herod, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod goes, it's either kill John or lose the influence I have on these men for not being a man of my word. He's torn to shreds, but he says, okay, sends out an executioner. Executioner visits John in prison, brings back the head on a platter. And then we're back to the disciples who are out doing what Jesus did, extending Jesus's ministry. And they come back to Jesus and they're like, hey, we did all of these things. What is going on in this story, right? A reasonable reader reads this story and thinks, what in the world am I supposed to learn from the story of John the Baptist getting his head severed? Why is it in the Bible? And why in the world is it sandwiched in the middle of Jesus' disciples out there doing the things that Jesus did? Well, I'll tell you why it's out there. I'll tell you why the story's in there. The story's in there. And it's sandwiched between the disciples being on mission for Jesus because it's foreshadowing something to you. There's a dark cloud that's gathering over the head of Jesus in his public ministry. Because if you remember, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. So whatever John does, Jesus comes along and he does in greater measure. So John the Baptist comes along. 
He baptizes with water. Jesus comes along. He baptizes with spirit. John the Baptist comes along and he gets himself killed for telling the truth. And Jesus comes along and he gets himself killed. Spoiler alert. Gets himself killed, not just for telling the truth, but for being the truth. You know, sometimes I think that we're so familiar with the story of the crucifixion of Jesus that sometimes it fails to shock us and wow us and amaze us like it should, right? We become so familiar with God in the flesh on a cross that sometimes we fail to even reckon with what we're actually beholding. I guess what I'm trying to say right now is that six months ago, I was listening to a podcast on J.K. Rowling. Any J.K. Rowling fans out there? Harry Potter. I know it's kind of, people are, it's kind of the jury's out on that in churches, whatever. If you don't like J.K. Rowling, if you don't like Harry Potter, that's totally cool. You can still get down with the point that I'm talking about. Six months ago, I was on a long car drive home. And so I was asking for podcast recommendations and somebody was like, you should listen to the J.K. Rowling um, podcast. I think it's called the witch hunt or the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. It was super interesting. Okay. But the most interesting thing to me in the entire podcast was one little personal story that she told that absolutely shocked me. It happened all the way back when the original books were released, like back in the the nineties. I think that was in the 90s. Right, Ben? You're a, you're, a, you're a Harry Potter fan, right? No, we'll say it's the 90s. 90s? We'll say it's the 90s. So um, that was like the beginning of the, the internet, too. And so what happened as, uh, as the Harry Potter books were coming out is there was an online internet forum for a bunch of nerds, of, well, a bunch of fans of Harry Potter, where they could go onto this online forum. I think it was called Potter World or something like that. Yeah? Potter World. Cool. So it's called Potter World. And all these people that could log onto these forums, they could enter the chat and they could just type endlessly about all of their speculations about Harry Potter and what they thought about Harry Potter. And they could, you know, analyze Harry Potter. It was this huge, gigantic online world about Harry Potter, which is a world that JK Rowling created in her mind. And so one day JK Rowling was like, what if I made an anonymous account and logged into Potter World. And so she did that. So she signs up for Potter World anonymously, right? It's not like she was like the underscore author. Anonymously goes into this forum. She logs into one of the chats. It's a chat about analyzing characters or making predictions. And what Rowling does, she created the world. So spoiler alert, her answer is right. Her, her response is the truth. And she writes out on this forum, this long winded analysis of Harry Potter and this prediction for you, you know, the final couple books and everything like that. She's the author. She dreamed up the story. She came up with the story. It was her love for the Harry Potter universe, which is why the Harry Potter universe exists. And so she writes out this long story, this long answer on the forum. And what do you think happens? Well, everybody celebrates her, right? She's like, wow, you're such a genius. You can see into the future. You're a prophet. You're a truth teller. Hurrah, aren't you so smart? No, that's not what happens. Instead of being celebrated for her thoughts on the world that she created, the literal exact opposite happened. She was ridiculed. She was mocked. In her words, she was bullied and, quote, 
in no uncertain terms told to leave. She gets kicked out of a forum based on a world she created. She's the author. She dreamt it up. She wrote it. And the world that she created hates her. And this is exactly what happens to Jesus when Jesus enters the chat. Jesus is the author of this world. He dreamt it up. He sovereignly ordained it. He upholds it by the power of his own word. He's the one who wrote it. He put the grammar, mechanics, and usage into every breath that you take. And when he enters into the chat, what happens? He's ridiculed. He's mocked. He's bullied. And in no uncertain terms is told to get out. In fact, he's thrown onto a cross where he's crucified to atone for our sins and cover us with his righteousness. He's the author. And the very world that he created, when the truth enters into it, it hates him and crucifies him. And it makes a person wonder, in a world like this, Why would anybody tell the truth? Because if you do, one of Jesus's promises to you is not just that John the Baptist is going to get himself in trouble, not that Jesus is going to get himself in trouble, but that you too will be persecuted. So let's talk about that. I've got four things I want to tell you about how to handle persecution well, but before we get there, I want to give you a quick warning. Sound good? You guys with me? Okay, cool. Let me give you a quick warning about telling the truth and enduring persecution. Then I'll jump into some practical stuff about how to handle persecution really well. Here's my warning first. The Bible promises that you will be persecuted and mocked for your faith, but you need to watch out for what's called the persecution bias. Let me explain. Some of you have maybe heard about the persecution bias. Some of you have not. So let me explain it to you. The persecution bias is the very real phenomenon that because the Bible promises that you will be persecuted, you will tend to have a bias to interpret every negative event in your life as a fulfillment of that promise. And sometimes that will cause you to sometimes be blind to your own fault in certain situations. So in other words, what I'm saying And this is, again, this is the persecution bias, is that sometimes people will respond negatively to you because you're following Jesus, but sometimes people are going to respond negatively to you just because you're being a mean-spirited jerk, right? And you need to be able to distinguish the difference between the two. When people respond negatively to you because of your own sin and your own sourness, you need to resist the temptation to throw your hands up and say, well, Jesus said I would be persecuted. Right? Don't apply this bias to everything. Like when you're driving around the parking lot and somebody gets to a parking space before you, don't throw your hands up and say, Jesus said I'd be persecuted. You're just a bad driver. That's what's happening here. Right? When, when you hold up a mean-spirited cardboard sign on the corner of a busy block and yell at strangers who are walking by, don't throw up your hands and say, well, Jesus promised I'd be persecuted. No, you're just being an intolerable, self-righteous megaphone. Distinguish the difference between when persecution comes your way because you're an imperfect person who needs to learn and grow. Distinguish that from when persecution comes your way because you're following Jesus. Here's the balance you need to hold in your heart really closely. Jesus promised you would be persecuted for his namesake, but not everything is persecution. 
So the goal, therefore, is to be persecuted, not because of our own sourness or our own personality, but to be persecuted because we're following Jesus and holding fast to his way and his truth. So let's talk a little bit about that and unpack that a little bit. How do we become the type of people who deal with real persecution well so that we become known in the world for people who tell the truth? Four things, then I'll be out of your hair. The first thing you need to do if you want to handle persecution well when it comes your way First, you need to replace your expectations for your life with Jesus's expectations for your life. Get your expectations out. Bring Jesus's expectations in. This is important because society beats it into our head that if we go down this pathway or that pathway or get this degree and get the job and get the house, then life will finally become easy and increasingly free of pain. And that's not how life works. That's an inappropriate expectation for you to have for your life. That's not how life works because everything that is worth anything has a cost. Want to follow your calling in life? There's a cost. Want to develop good friendships? There's a cost. Want to get married and have kids? There's a cost. Only an allergic to logic, fragile mind would think, therefore, that there's no cost to following Jesus whatsoever. So if Jesus tells us that following him includes taking up our crosses, we should probably not expect a life of ever-increasing easiness. Right? Now the cost, it won't always be, right? It won't always be your head on a plate like John. It won't always be a literal death like Jesus. We don't live in ancient Rome, but it may be the death of your reputation, your reputation on a platter. It may be the death of your preferences. It may be the death of your worldly dreams. Death comes in many forms, and so persecution also comes in many forms. Expect it and don't be thrown off by it when it comes your way. Or to phrase it in light of our text this morning, here's what one commentator says about the story of John's death being sandwiched between stories of the disciples doing what Jesus did. Quote, what in the world does Mark intend by bracketing the martyrdom of John the Baptist with the mission of the 12? Well, the sandwich structure draws together mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into inseparable relationships. Whosoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. Now, do I think that you'll be killed in your lifetime for your faith? I don't know. What if I had to guess? Probably not. I don't think that's likely. We don't live in ancient Rome. However, you must reckon with John's head on a plate, and as uncomfortable as it makes you, you must ask yourself, would I follow Jesus towards that end? And reckoning with John's head on a platter, as uncomfortable as it makes you feel, will radically adjust your expectations for your life, to say the least. It should pretty much put to death any expectations of a life of ever-increasing easiness, right? Delete your expectations for your life. Copy and paste Jesus's expectations into your life. That's number one. Number two, take up your cross and take up your cross now. Do not wait 
to take up your cross for when hardship comes. Clean out the closets, put to death your sin patterns, do the hard work of heart work now before persecution comes. Do it now, because if you put yourself to death in the present moment, then you take away the power of persecution in the future moment. When you put yourself to death in the present, you take away the power of persecution in the future, because when persecution comes, the threats mean nothing because you already put yourself to death. You're threatening a man who doesn't exist. You're going to cut down Cole's reputation. What's a coal? What's a coal? He's already dead. Coal is vapor. He's a fog that's here one moment and is gone the next moment. Coal is the weather. He's here one day and gone the next. Persecution loses all of its power. When you put yourself to death, persecution becomes powerless. But if you haven't sufficiently put yourself to death, then when persecution does come your way, you might find that you don't have the muscle to endure it for the sake of the truth. If you don't put yourself to death now, then when persecution comes, you might just discover that your ego is stronger than you thought, and your ego might find itself kicking and screaming to defend itself, even if that means denying Jesus. So put yourself to death today and you'll find that your life is hidden in Christ. Jesus is not demanding you to endure a cost for which there is no reward. Your life is hidden with Christ is what the Bible says. And that means that for those who follow him in this short and puny blink of a time on earth, there is a never ending, never running out, unceasing fountain of heavenly joys and pleasures waiting for you in heaven. Don't let yourself get in the way of that. Put her to death now. Third, and this one really comes through in the text. If you want to handle persecution really well when it comes your way, then third, you must value the truth more than you value the head on your shoulders. There was a really simple way for John the Baptist to keep his head from rolling. Just shut up. Stop telling the truth. Right? Just go dink around with the text a little bit. Well, actually, when you say it that way, Herod... When, when you look at the original text here in the Hebrew where it says you shouldn't marry your brother's wife, what that actually means when you dig around a little bit is that it's cool if you marry your brother's wife. It's like, no, man. That's all he had to do. And he would probably get power and a spot at Herod's right hand. But he keeps telling the truth. As one famous thinker phrased it, you want to escape criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. But if you value the head on the shoulders, if you value your reputation more than you value the truth, then when the world makes you walk the plank and gives you an out, if you'll simply read the script that they wrote out loud while they point the camera at you and press record, you'll gladly abandon Jesus in that moment. You'll gladly abandon the truth if it keeps you dry, right? And so what we need to do is we need to learn to tell the truth and we need to tell the truth now and we can start by paying attention to what comes out of your mouth on a day-to-day basis. Here's the way one philosopher phrases the task of telling the truth. This is humbling to hear. He says, quote, when I began to pay much closer attention to what I was saying on a day-to-day basis, the results were disconcerting to say the least. I soon came to realize that mostly everything I said was untrue. I had motives for saying these untrue things. I wanted to win arguments 
and gain status and impress people and get what I wanted. And it occurred to me that I was using language, not for the sake of the truth, but as a tool to get what I wanted. I was a fake. And so I started practicing telling the truth, or at least not lying, end quote. It's interesting when you look at Jesus, though, and John the Baptist, because these two men in a world of liars, they refuse to use language dishonestly as a tool to manipulate and get what they want from the world. They do the opposite. What they do is they stubbornly, consistently, joyfully use language to tell the truth about reality and God, even if it means they get their head severed or put on a cross. And so it's not a cute statement for a Christian apron when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so as a follower of Jesus, you too are called to be the truth with arms and legs and skin on, to speak the truth about God, to speak the truth about the gospel and reality. And if it must be said, to speak the truth about King Herod as well. And as you do that, there are right ways and wrong ways of doing it, right? I hope you choose to speak the truth boldly and without cowardice, without fear. But also I hope that you choose to speak the truth with patience, tenderness, and graciousness. But there will be times when you speak the truth with all the graciousness and patience in the universe, and the world will still want to put your head on a plate no matter how gentle you are. And when that happens, you can tell them which drawer they can find your dishes in. Don't abandon the truth. Tell the truth. And fourth and finally... How do you handle persecution well when it comes your way? Fourth, you should smile in the face of persecution. When persecution comes your way by virtue of following Jesus alone, not because you were being a jerk and not because somebody took your parking spot, not because you feel like playing the victim card, but when you have been loving, patient, gentle, and truthful for Jesus and persecution still comes, you should take it with a smile on your face and receive it with gratitude. We don't know exactly what expression John had on his face when it was severed, but we do know that when Jesus was crucified, he was forgiving the ones who were doing it. We do know that when Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts, was stoned for telling the truth, he was singing as the rocks hit him. We do know that James says, says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We know that Paul says... For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with insults and persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These people smiled in the face of the cost of discipleship. So when it comes your way, don't lick your wounds. Don't pity yourself. Don't retaliate. Pay it gladly. Pay it gladly, amen? Pay it gladly because when you pay a great price for something... You know what happens? When you pay a great price for something, it demonstrates to the watching world the glory of that thing. And so when you pay a price for telling the truth, when you pay a price for following Jesus, it tells the watching world that Jesus is more glorious, is more worthy, is more joyful, is more satisfying, is more supreme than the cost. Amen? And so I think that's why you should tell the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
I, uh, I confess that this is a hard sermon for me to preach because um, I tend to be a people pleaser. I find myself pretty consistently in the middle of conversations just kind of nodding my head, smiling and agreeing even when I don't agree. And then later that night when I think about the conversation, I'm thinking, why, why did I just agree with that? I don't, I don't agree with that. And I think it's because I value my own likability sometimes more than the truth. But I know that Jesus, there's, there's grace for that. And Jesus loves me and Jesus forgives me. And so by the grace of God, as an imperfect man, as a man with a bend towards lying, by the grace of God, I can continue to get up day after day, taking steps in the direction of following Jesus and learning little by little how to be the truth with skin on, how to be the truth with arms and legs, how to be a disciple of Jesus who does the things that Jesus does, even when it requires of me telling the truth. So it's in Jesus' great and glorious and beautiful name that we pray these things. Amen.